good to see you all this morning. Hope you're having a great weekend. Got to go to the fair on Thursday. Have you been to the fair? I try to make my recommendations based on food rather than rides. So I have a recommendation for you, and I know you're thinking it's the Krispy Kreme Sloppy Joe. It's not that. I, I, I from year to year, get uh, chicken on a stick. I like chicken on a stick. That's good. It's always good. It's fried. It's good for you. But this particular year, they have chicken on a stick that is fried in, not cornflakes, but frosted flakes. Okay, so I'm just telling you, if you have a chance to go to the fair, I recommend the chicken on a stick that is deep fried in frosted flakes, right? It's good. And if you get one, uh, get an extra, wrap it up in foil and bring it to my house because I'd like to have another one. All right. All right. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians. You're going to be hearing that a lot over the next 13 weeks or so. And I hope that this series is a blessing to you. We're going to going to do an introduction uh, to the series, first nine verses this morning, and I hope it doesn't scare you off. <laughs> it might scare some of you off when we're done this morning. Last weekend, I don't know if you read it in the news, but last weekend, famed British artist Banksy, whose socially conscious works have commanded six figures at auction, made his biggest statement yet when he offered his signed original spray paintings, get this, for $60 a piece at a street side stall outside Central Park. The deal of a lifetime lured just three buyers in a city that's known as the center of the art world. The article that I read went on to say the three lucky customers, including one woman who haggled a 50% discount, <laughs> which is great, man. You got to love that lady, right? She snatched up eight paintings for a total of $420 during the seven hours that an anonymous elderly man manned the booth. It's estimated, get this, that the art pieces could be worth as much as $31,000 a piece and a total value of over a quarter of a million dollars. The missed opportunities had New Yorkers beside themselves on Monday. Here's what some people said. Wow, I was in Central Park this Saturday and totally missed this. The guy said, I'm an idiot. You said it. Holy cow, what I wouldn't have given to have stopped by Central Park on Saturday to purchase a bank seat, tweeted Katie Morris of Brooklyn. Among the art lovers kicking themselves for missing out on the clearance sale was Emily Flowers, who's a video producer at NBC News, who describes herself, get this, as a street-smart New Yorker who studied art in college. While most pedestrians paid the sidewalk set up no mind, Flowers actually derided the salesman when she walked by, assuming that he was selling knockoffs. She said, I know a false Banksy when I see one. Flowers wrote on NBC's website after learning each of the signed knockoffs was actually the genuine article. She said, all day I've been replaying my brush with Banksy through my head, trying to figure out if I missed any tip-offs that a pot of art world gold was right under my nose. You know, as I read that story this week, I thought to myself, this illustrates well how so many people miss the pure gospel message. It's right there, it's so simple, it's right under their nose, and yet they miss it. And today, we begin our study of the book of Galatians, the book that has been conferred with such titles as the Magna Carta of Spiritual Liberty, the Battle Cry of the Reformation, or the Christian's Declaration of Independence. Many church historians maintain that the foundations of the Reformation actually was laid when Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians was written. Some of you know that we celebrate the Reformation in the month of October. 
The great reformer, German reformer Luther, said this, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. He said, to it I am, as it were, in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. That's the name of his wife. Now that's a pretty extreme statement, right? I hope that over the next 13 weeks that you will grow to love the book of Galatians. But I don't know if anybody will say, I were, it was my wife. Maybe some of you would, but uh, I, don't, I don't think many of you would. That's how much that Luther loved the book of Galatians. He says, I'm in wedlock to Galatians. It's my Catherine. It was out of his careful and submissive study of Scripture, especially the book of Galatians, that Luther discovered that God's plan of salvation by grace working through faith is a plan that is unalterably contrary to the thousand-year-old Roman Catholic teaching of salvation by works, and thus the Reformation actually began. Galatians clearly defines for us, for those of us that are willing to listen, what it takes to not only enter the kingdom of heaven, but how to live out the implications of the gospel in our daily living now. Now that's a very important statement. It has implications not only for us entering the kingdom of heaven, but it has implications for how we live out the gospel today. I have been amazed in my 25 years as a pastor how many times I have heard what I believe to be well-meaning Christians say of their church or another church, oh, that church always just preaches the gospel. Maybe you've said it yourself. Maybe you've been in a church and you thought that they, that they preached the gospel message just a little bit too much. I'm here to remind you this morning that the gospel really, at the end of the day, that's all we really have. You get that? That's all we really have is the gospel. We don't have anything else. You say, well, we have a children's ministry. Yes, we have a children's ministry, and I'm thankful for it. And I know many of you are, but we have a children's ministry that exists for the purpose of communicating the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. We don't have anything else. You say, yeah, but we, we have a student ministry. Yeah, yeah, we do have a student ministry, but let me tell you, it's more about paintball. I know, paintball. How many of you paintballed yesterday? All right. It's more than shooting each other with uh, balls filled with paint. And we do that in order that we might be able to gain, to win a platform, so that we might be able to teach these students what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, we have women's Bible studies and we have men's programs and we do all of these things. Yes, we do all of these things because of the gospel. Without the gospel, we have no reason to exist. I'll say it again a few moments from now, but let me say it at the outset. Without the gospel, we have no reason to exist. In fact, one author states it well when he says this. We're going to watch Paul challenge them and us with the simple truth that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, but the A to Z, that Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians. Paul will explain to us that the truths of the gospel change life from top to bottom, that they transform our hearts, our thinking, and our approach to absolutely everything. The gospel is the message that tells us that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved than we ever dared hope. And it creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth, for obedience, for love. That's what we're going to talk about the next 13 weeks. We're going to talk about the gospel. We're going to talk about the gospel. 
And I hope that you understand that the gospel is more and has greater implications than just your eternity. That's big, right? (laughs) I mean, you want to make sure that eternity is secure, that you know where you're going to spend eternity when you leave this planet. And by the way, you all are. You say, well, there are some people in our congregation that are dying. No, all of us in our congregation are dying. You recognize that, right? And so the gospel has obvious implications for where we spend eternity. But the gospel, according to Paul, as he writes to the Galatians, has implications not just for eternity, but it has implications of how you and I live our lives every single day of our lives. I would submit to you that that is why so many of us have problems in relationships, because we don't fully understand the gospel. We don't fully understand grace. As Dr. White talked about last week, we don't fully understand grace and its relationship to forgiveness. One of the reasons why we have issues in our marriages is because we do not live out the implications of the gospel. One of the reasons why we have problems in our local church is because some of us, while we thought we got the ABCs right, we learned the ABCs, we prayed a prayer, we crossed that line of faith, and therefore now the gospel has no implications. One of the reasons why we have conflict, even within our local church, is because we do not understand the implications of the gospel for daily living. And the Apostle Paul is going to make sure by the end of this book that you understand it all. And it's a big deal. And so let's start our study here in chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to go through in an expositional way. Some of you have not had experience to expository preaching or teaching, and you're used to a pastor just kind of playing popcorn all over the Bible and, and on some topical subjects. That's good. We do that from time to time. But this is exposition, all right? We're going through it sentence by sentence, some cases word by word. So let's start with verse 1, Paul. Let's stop right there, all right? See, that's your first exposure to expository preaching. You're going, woohoo! I love expository preaching already. How many words are there in this book? How many times will he do that? Probably several times, all right? But let me stop right there for just a moment because it's important because Paul is writing this letter And it's important for you to understand a little bit about Paul. I want to give you just a little preview for next week. Next week, we're going to talk about Paul's story. I didn't really get into this a lot in the first service, but since I can take you a little over noon if I have to, I'm going to do this. The implications of our story are huge. We all have a story. You got a story. I love hearing stories. I sit across the table from people from time to time and I say, tell me your story. And they really don't understand what I mean by that. Some people are all taken off, you know. Some of you grew up in church, you go, oh, you mean my testimony? Call it whatever you want. I want to know your story because your story makes you who you are right now. It doesn't necessarily define you, but it tells us where you came from and how you got to where you are. And we're going to talk about Paul's story next week. And I want to talk about the implication not only of Paul's story, but your story as well. We'll do that next week. But a few things that I want you to know about Paul right here at the outset, since he's writing this letter. Paul's original name was Saul. Some of you know that. He was a native of the city of Tarsus which was in Southeast Asia Minor. It's not too far from Southern Galatia, which is the group of churches that he's writing to. He's raised in a strict Jewish family and was steeped in traditional Jewish legalism. Very important word for you to understand, legalism. You think of Paul, you think of legalism. That's how he grew up, all right? And next week we're going to talk about his story, but it suffices to say that he met Jesus on a road to Damascus and his life was never the same. We believe that the gospel has implications that when you really come to understand who Jesus is, that when you come into a saving relationship with Jesus, that everything changes. 
Some of you are going, well, why hasn't anything changed for me? Could I lovingly, as your pastor say to you, that for many of you, the reason why nothing's really changed is because you've really never met Jesus. And when you do meet Jesus, and when you understand the implications of grace, not only for eternity, but in each and every day of your life, your life will be radically transformed. And that was the testimony of the Apostle Paul. He was a church-planting missionary. He planted churches, and then he left, and he went to another region to plant a church. And he continued to minister to these churches through letters. I can only think as I've studied over the last few weeks what it would be like if the Apostle Paul today was doing what he did in the book of Acts. It would just be incredible. He'd be tweeting things. I mean, I can just see Paul on the ship, you know. Boy, I hope I have cell service. I hope I can tweet. And he'd just tweet little one-liners, and they're going, hey, Paul just tweeted, you know. That's what Paul was doing. Paul didn't have an opportunity to go flying hither and yon. I mean, as he traveled, obviously he would travel by ship. He would sometimes travel by land. It was very difficult. And so many times, the way that he continued to minister to the churches was through letters. And that's what Galatians is. It's a letter. We know that this was, this was a different type of letter. If you flip over to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11, you'll see that Paul wrote, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Most of the time, Paul would use a scribe to write down what he was saying. Now, there are some scholars that believe that he said this because he was writing in large letters because he might have had poor eyesight. We don't know that for sure. There are some pretty good reasons for us to believe that that might have been true. But this was really important for the Apostle Paul to sit down and write this letter. Different from many of his other letters, he's writing this by hand. It's something that he has to say. I said it in the first hour, I think that this is certainly true, and you'll relate to this if you've ever gotten an email from me. If you ever get a long email from me, assume one of two things. Number one, it's not from me. Somebody's hacked into my account, all right? Or number two, that I have something really, really serious to say to you. If you get a long email from David Amon, hey, welcome to the club. We get several of them every week. That's what he does. He writes long, detailed letters. He tells us everything we need to know. There's nothing left unsaid. That's great. I love it. I always have a record of what he says. That's probably why I don't write long emails, David, because I don't really want a record of what I've said, right? But Paul would normally tell a scribe, be like me telling one of these middle school guys up there, here, write this down, and they would write it down. And and then he would send these letters. This letter is so pressing, and this is so important for you to understand. It is so pressing that he takes parchment and he begins penning the words himself, even though it's obviously very difficult for him to do. There's a huge crisis that's going on. And so under the inspiration, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he writes this letter with great urgency. That's Paul. Paul's an apostle. He says, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here. We could probably just park here and we could just spend the next half hour or so here. We won't do that. But I want you to understand what an apostle is. If you're taking notes, you might want to write down there are capital A apostles and there are lowercase a apostles, all right? Paul is saying, I am a capital A apostle. The Greek word means one who is sent with a commission, an envoy, an ambassador, or a messenger, who was, this is important, was chosen and trained by Jesus Christ as his special emissary for proclaiming his truth during the formative years of the church. And you know, if if you're a Bible student, if you've studied through the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, that these apostles did many things. They were given the power to perform healings and to cast out demons as verifying signs of their divine authority. 
And it should be noted also that of the 12 apostles, you remember Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was replaced in Acts chapter 1 with Matthias. Now, in addition to the 12 apostles, there is the gift of apostle in the New Testament as well. Now, I think it's always funny how real strict conservative evangelicals don't like to use certain words. And that's one of the words where we don't like to use. We read that he gave some to be pastors, some to be teachers, some to be apostles. And we go, ooh, apostle, that sounds like a bad word. Better not use that word. This is small a apostle. Paul says he gave some to be prophets and some to be apostles. The apostles in this sense are missionaries that go out and preach the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. And they start new churches. The term is used in the New Testament of men like Barnabas, who went with Paul, known as the son of encouragement. He was Paul's encouragement. It's used of Silas and of Timothy and other outstanding leaders. These are lowercase a apostles. Apostle Paul is capital A apostle. Now, because he was not among the original 12, Paul finds it very necessary, and I think it's definitely true, he finds it definitely necessary that he's got to make sure that he defends his apostleship in ways that the others didn't have to. Because one of the qualifications, some of you will remember, for being an apostle was that they had actually witnessed the risen Christ. Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that between his resurrection and ascension, he wrote, Jesus first appeared to Cephas, Peter, Then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, and then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, and I love how Paul writes this, as it were to one untimely born. (laughs) Isn't that a great phrase? As it were to one untimely born. Have you ever felt you were one of those people that was untimely born? Maybe Meaning, maybe you would have loved to have been born in another day. I've said sometimes that I would have loved to have been born in the days of Little House on the Prairie. And then Al Gore invented the internet, and I thought, wow, hey, well, if I was in a little house in the prairie, Al Gore, by the way, kids, did not invent the internet. If I'd have been born back here, you know, but I thought that's untimely because I really would have liked to have been born back there. The Apostle Paul says, he appeared to me, last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And so Paul defends his apostleship because that has been brought into question, and we'll get into that here in just a a moment. Look at verse 2. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches at Galatia. Now, it's important for you to understand who he's writing to. The name Galatia is derived from the Celts who settled in Asia Minor after several centuries of plundering the Greek and Roman empires. And under Roman rule, the original region of Galatia was made part of a larger province by the same name. In fact, we refer to it now in modern days as Turkey. And it encompassed an area of about 250 miles north and south and about 175 miles east to west. In Paul's day, Galatia was also used for a smaller region as well as the province. And on one of his first missionary journeys, Paul and Barnabas together established four churches in the southern part of the province. And most Bible scholars believe, although we're not for sure, that these are the specific churches that he's writing to when he refers to the churches at Galatia. And those four churches are Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. You can find those in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And those churches apparently came to form something of a regional body of believers. It might be as if we were looking at the triangle area, a group of churches in in the triangle. Now, verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a really, really great verse. And And if you're not careful... You're going to go right on down to get into what you think is the good stuff, and you're going to miss this part. 
Grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We can summarize Christianity, by the way, in one word, and that one word is simply grace. That one word, grace, distinguishes Christians from everyone else. Grace. It's all about grace, and it's about nothing else. It's only about Jesus. It's only about grace. Let me say it again. It's all about grace. It's all about Jesus. It's not about anything else. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul puts it this way. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And that's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And so when someone says, are you a Christian? You say, yes. And you say, how do you know? And, and you say, Jesus. And they say, well, well, what have you done? And you say, nothing. And that's the point, right? It's all about Jesus. It isn't about anything that I have done. It's all about Jesus. Now, there are some of you here this morning, and I, and I need to just kind of go off just on a, little, on a little tangent for just a moment, because some of you are sitting there, and here's, here's what you're thinking right now. One of two groups. Some of you are thinking, I've heard this before. I placed my trust in Christ when I was 8 years old or 9 years old or 10 years old or 20 years old or 25 years old. So I don't really need to hear this, so I'm going to kind of tune out now. In fact, there's an internet connection in here. I'm going to do a little bit of surfing right now. I'm going to check my email. All right, don't do that if that's you. All right, because Galatians was written for you. All right, even though you think you've got it. And then there are some of you that go, well, I don't really know exactly what he's talking about, but I don't really think he's talking about me because, because I'm a good person and, and, and I come to church and I, and I got Jesus and I do all these other things. And certainly the whole package, the whole portfolio, when I present it to Jesus someday, he's going to go, impressive, impressive. Okay, You're in one of two groups this morning. When someone asks you if you're a Christian, you say yes, and how do you know it's Jesus? What have you done? Nothing. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus baptism. Don't, don't, don't mistake that. Baptism is an outward sign of what's already happened in the inside. It's not Jesus plus baptism. It's not Jesus plus speaking in tongues. A guy said to me not too long ago that I would really get it, I would really understand it when, when Jesus gave me the ability to be able to speak in tongues. And well, that's really sad because I trusted Christ at age nine. I'm 47. That means for 38 stinking years, I've been, I've, been, I've been trying to live the life and Jesus is supposed to have been part of my life and I thought the Holy Spirit had indwelled me and I can't speak with some tongue. It is not Jesus plus speaking in tongues. It's not Jesus plus your systematic theology. Some of you need to hear that. Some of you are quite proud about the fact that, that, that you know a lot of stuff and you know just enough stuff to make you dangerous actually. You know just enough stuff for you to rely on your knowledge of stuff rather than for you to totally appreciate what it means to be saved by grace alone. It's not Jesus plus my systematic theology. It's not Jesus plus my denominational traditions. Some of you sit here, and this has been really difficult for you coming to a church like Northwest, you know, because we don't have certain things that you've had in a denominational environment that you've been in. It's really difficult for you because, yeah, you love Jesus and you love the whole idea of grace, but, 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 but you want all this stuff as well, this denominational tradition. It is not Jesus plus denominational tradition. It's not Jesus plus your good works. 
You might be a really good person. You might be a lot better than I am. In fact, I'm quite sure that you're a lot better than I am. But if you add anything to Jesus, it is not Jesus alone. If you add anything to grace, it is not grace alone. And it is all about Jesus. That's all we've got and that's all we need. Can I say it any more emphatically? You're going to walk out at the end and you're going to go, well, it must all be about Jesus. I don't totally understand that yet, but it must be all about Jesus because that's the only thing I understood that he said was that it was all about Jesus. Right, kids? Can you, can you get a hold of that? It's all about Jesus. It isn't about you doing a lot of nice stuff and coming here and putting all your little whizzy buttons on your shirts that says, hey, I went to youth group and I did this and I did that and I had my little devotions this week and I did this and I did that and aren't I good? Don't I look good to my mom and dad? It's not about that. It's all about Jesus. Yeah, we got three amens. That's awesome. That's great. Three people believe it's all about Jesus. Well, if you don't believe it, you're going to believe it by the end of Galatians chapter 6. It is all about Jesus. And that grace produces what? You say you're going awfully slow here. Grace and what? Peace. Isn't that what it means when you really grasp that it's all about Jesus and it's not about you and it's not about your performance and it's not about how many good works you do and how many Girl Scout cookies you, you buy when a little girl comes to the door and if it was about that, I mean, I'd be there, all right? It's not about that. You know, when you get to the point where you understand it's all about grace, you know what that will produce in your life? Say it, come on, this is in the early service. It will produce peace in your life. It really will. It will produce peace. When you get to the point where you realize that Jesus loves me as much as he ever could love me, and he's not going to love me any less, then that will produce incredible peace. You won't be performing for Jesus. Boy, I don't want to get off on a tangent that I didn't get off on the first service, but let me, let me just ask you this morning, is it possible that some of you have already performed this morning for Jesus? You performed for grace. If I serve in the nursery and I, and I, and I, and I, and I minister those little babies that, that aren't mine and I change those diapers and somehow, somehow God, I, will, I will gain God's favor if I, if I help in children's ministry, if I, if I get here at some ungodly hour on a Sunday morning and I help set up, somehow God loves me and he's more impressed with me. Have some of us already performed for Jesus today? If so, you do not understand grace because God's grace is free. And it's all about Jesus. It isn't about you. It's not about me. I love Romans chapter 5 where Paul writes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Because I've been justified. My sin is no longer held against me. My account has been marked, paid in full, to telestai. You are free. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace produces peace. Look at verse 4. The same God who gave us this grace which produces peace, he gave himself for our sins to deliver to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. In case you didn't get it, let me give you the gospel again. This verse right here encapsulates the gospel. Paul says grace and peace. If you understand what real grace is, then you will experience peace. If you missed that, let me give it to you again. 
who gave himself for our sins to deliver us, to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. This verse encapsulates the gospel by, number one, stating our need. What is our need? Our need is we are helpless and lost. We need to be rescued. Some of you have translated that word deliver to rescue. He came himself for our sins to rescue us. All I know is this, that people who need to be rescued are in a helpless situation, right? I've gotten into the habit of watching some of these shows. You, you see these, uh, these guys up in, up in Alaska that are rescuing people like out in the Bering Sea. Anybody watch that? And I'm going, those dudes like are insane, right? I mean, they're going out there and here's these helpless people. God only knows and only he alone can know why these people are doing what they're doing. A few weeks ago, I saw these kayakers. They were kayaking amongst uh, pieces of, um, what do you call those? Icebergs. I mean, <laughs> I saw them this summer up in Alaska. They were kayaking around these icebergs and got caught in an ice field. And my first reaction was, leave them there, right? That's my spiritual gift of compassion, right? I mean, I'm going, leave them there. Why should I as a taxpayer pay to get some guy rescued out of an ice field who's kayaking around icebergs, right? Aren't you thankful that I'm, <laughs> that, uh, that I'm not the guy, right? No, these guys swoop in on their on their helicopters, and in some cases they went down, they rescued him, others of them, they just navigated them out of that ice field. They needed to be rescued. They were helpless. They knew if we didn't get some help, we're going to die, and that's where we are. We need to be delivered. We need to be rescued. We aren't basically good people. You know that, right? I'm going to reiterate that here in just a moment. We're helpless. What was his gift? He gave himself for our sins. He substituted himself on the cross where we belonged. And that's why the gospel, and that's why Jesus is so radical. He didn't simply just give us a second chance to get it right. That's what some of us believe, right? We totally screwed up, and then all of a sudden we come to Jesus, and he goes, all right now, second chance. You know what happens at three chances, right? I mean, you're out, right? I'm going to give you another chance, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm bringing you to this point so that you can try to do this thing on your own again. And for many of us, that's what we try to do in our Christian life, especially early in our Christian life. We go, okay, well, now i gotta, now I got to do this thing right. I can't. Oh, Jesus is mad at me. No. He substituted himself on the cross where we belong, and that's why the gospel's radical. There are a lot of teachers, and all they did was teach. A lot of great religious leaders, and all they did was teach. You know what makes Jesus different? He substituted himself. He was willing to die. He was, he, was, he was willing to be the substitutionary atonement for your sins and for mine. And so now when we trust in his sacrifice on the cross as our payment for sin, we are absolutely free from the debt of sin and condemnation. And why did he do this? I think some of us believe he did it because, you know, after all, I mean, look at me. I mean, right? I mean, if you were God, wouldn't you? I mean, some of us really believe that. Some of us really believe that we're basically pretty good people. And some of us know we're not, right? When we talk about Paul's story next week, I think you'll maybe see yourself in a little bit of a, of a new light. Some of us think we're really good, and some of us think we've got our act together. And yet, the person in here who has their act together the most is helpless, is hopeless without Jesus, why did he do this? Because God realized our need, not because of anything that we had done, but he loved us and he planned to rescue. It was grace, not because of anything that 
we had done or that we deserved. In fact, Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, one translation says at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're not under condemnation anymore. He has saved us because he chose to. It was part of his plan. So that he might save us from this present age. By the way, this age doesn't refer to a period of time, but to a passing transitory system. In this case, the evil satanic world system that has dominated the world since the fall in the book of Genesis. And it's a good reminder to us that when we experience God's grace, we are not only saved for eternity, but we are no longer slaves to sin. So if you consistently and constantly find yourself in a situation where you say, I can't help it, I continually do this thing. You know, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do anything if you were in Christ. You chose to do it. You made a conscious decision to do it. The devil didn't make you do it. He is no longer your master. Those chains have been broken. We're free. Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 5. As a result of all of that, as a result of what he's done, Verse 5 says, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's all God's doing. And he's the only one because it was his plan. It was his sacrifice. It's only obvious. It should be obvious to us that he's the one that deserves all the glory. Now, the mention of these three churches, I think, is incredibly brief. And it's impersonal. And there's an apparent lack of encouraging personal words from Paul. And usually in Paul's letters, he finds encouraging words to say to the people. It kind of reminds me of, you look in Philippians, for example, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, some of you sometimes sign your letters with Philippians 1, 3. Anybody ever done that? You know, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know, I remember when I was in high school, several times as I was writing letters to girls that I thought uh, might have interest in me because I had interest in them, I would, in my great spiritual sense, sign my name and then put Philippians 1, 3. And I'm sure they would look at it and go, wow, he thanks God upon every remembrance of me. What an incredible guy. That's what Paul said to the church at Philippi. He said, every time that I think about you, I thank God. That's pretty incredible, right? To have somebody say that about you, every time I think about you, I just thank God that I know you. I thank God for the privilege of having a relationship with you. He wrote to the Colossians, we give thanks to God praying for you. And then, you know, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote them two letters And when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said a lot of nice stuff about them. And you go, Corinthians? I mean, you ever wonder why somebody would name their church, by the way, Corinth Baptist Church? You ever study those letters? I mean, those people, they were some bad dudes and dudettes. I mean, they did some stuff they weren't supposed to be doing, which is kind of a good thing because now we have it written for us as an example of what not to do. But you don't really want to call your church Corinth Baptist Church, right? But even when he wrote the letters to Corinth... Even when he wrote the letters to Corinth, he said nice things about them. He greeted them in a nice and friendly way. And so I think it's very remarkable that here he takes just five short verses, and in five verses, he's given us the gospel at least two times. You just know something's coming. I mean, if you're the Galatians and you get this letter in your email, 
I mean, you're going, oh man, I don't care what the subject line is, there's something bad that's about ready to happen. And I've been there before, and some of you are wired very similar to me. You've been in a situation where there's something that you want to say to somebody, and it's kind of like an elephant in the room, and so you kind of sit down and you start talking, and you're kind of saying words, you're saying sentences, but you're going, look, I know what I really need to say, right? Anybody ever been there? And you're going, let's just get to it. Others of you, you know, you just, you don't want any confrontation, you don't want to ever say anything that might hurt anybody, and so you'll drone on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Paul's not one of those guys, right? So Paul takes five verses, makes sure he gives them the gospel in, uh, at least two times, and, and then he starts talking to them. His resentment of their defection from the gospel of grace forced him to dispense with any commendation or personal remarks, and he simply gives them a gospel greeting before he rebukes them. Look at verse 6. we got to hurry. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So five verses in, he says, I'm really shocked. I mean, I'm shocked that after I left, you, have, you are quickly deserting the faith and there are these people that have come in and you're, and you're starting to listen to them as if there were another gospel and there's not. You see, Paul has special concern for these believers. He knows the climate. He's been there. He was stoned when he was at Lystra. He knows that it's a hostile environment. The Christians in Galatia, by the way, they're, they're mostly Gentiles. Probably a few of them Jews, but most of them are Gentiles. And both Jews and Gentiles have simply believed the gospel of Christ and they've become Christians because Paul taught them the gospel very simply. And as soon as Paul leaves, what happens? False prophets, false teachers come in and they begin to teach things that are contrary to the gospel that Paul had preached. Their message was that Gentile Christians now must be circumcised and they must keep the Jewish law. See, that's what it meant to be a Jew. And so these leaders, these teachers are coming in and they were saying it's a really great thing that you've got Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. You need to be Gentiles, you need to be circumcised, and you need to follow all of the Jewish dietary laws and all of the ceremonies. You need to add these things on top of Jesus in order that you might get the real thing. By the way, I think that that's one of, the, one of the most tragic things that happens to new believers in churches. Even people that have come to know Jesus right here at Northwest, the sad thing is, is that we preach the pure, unadulterated, simple gospel, and they come into our church, and before too long, we don't recognize them because somehow we've told them, yeah, Jesus is a great thing, that's really nice to have that, but you've got to do this and this and this and this and this. In order to be good Christians, you've got to look like this, and you've got to act like this, and if you don't look like me and you don't act like me, then somehow you're not a good Christian, and that is not the gospel. And that's exactly what was being taught to these people. Great that you have Jesus. Now if you'll just add a few more things to that, in this case circumcision, if you'll add these other ceremonies. And the false teachers were accountable for their corruption of God's truth. But the Galatian Christians were also accountable. And Paul is saying, I am shocked. Now it's easy for us to look at it in 2013 and go, well, we are too. We are too. I mean, how could those people, I mean, he taught them the simple gospel, and how could they just come in and just buy into this idea, idea that Jesus isn't enough, and they start adding all this stuff, and they complicate things? Does this sound familiar? I'm afraid that that's what many of us have done. Many of us grew up in environments that are like that. We have complicated. We have, dare I use the word, we have perverted 
the pure gospel. Most destructive dangers to the church have never been atheism or pagan religions or cults that openly deny scripture, but rather supposedly Christian movements that accept a good portion of biblical truth, but then they add their unscriptural doctrines that seem relatively insignificant and harmless, and yet they destroy the pure gospel. Paul wouldn't tolerate any of that. And so you say, okay, well, great. You know, what's the application? What does all that mean? I'm glad you asked. Let me close by keeping it real simple. I've got just a few points here I want to make. There are three kinds of churches, I believe, that deny one or both of these truths. All right? We have to go quickly. Number one is the church that says you're saved through your surrender to Christ plus right beliefs and right behavior. You say, what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, you surrender to Christ, you become a follower of Jesus, and then, you know, you're supposed to do all of these things. No, your behavior happens as a result of who you have become in Christ. You are not saved by your good behavior. Some of you, there ought to be scales that ought to be coming down from your eyes right now because you've thought all along that it's not just that I trust in Christ alone. i got to do all of this stuff along the way. If that's what you've bought into, you've bought into a false gospel. It is Christ. It is grace alone. And when you live as somebody who has experienced grace, the grace and the mercy of a loving God who loved you when you were not lovable, who loved me when I was not lovable because I'm still not lovable. But he reached down and he saved me. And he loves me as much as he ever could and ever would love me. And there's nothing that I can do to gain his favor. Yes, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to behave this way because of who I am in Christ, not to become who I am in Christ. Number two, there are churches that say it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a loving and good person. Tim Keller said it this way, if good people can know God, then Jesus' death was not necessary. Right? Isn't that true? I mean, if I'm God and I'm sitting up in heaven and and it's just about you being good, then I just look down and I go, be good. Right? Just be good. Just do the right stuff. Be good. Be nice. Be kind to your brothers and sisters. You know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do drugs, don't hang out with those that do. You know? That'd be it. I just say, just be good. There'd be no need for Jesus. You being good, you being a nice, loving, and kind person, that's nice, but that doesn't get you to heaven. And there are churches that are talking right now all across the triangle, and it's all about you being good. You being just a little bit better. And you doing all these nice things, and they pad their offering boxes in the back because if you, if you give a little bit more, somehow you'll, you'll gain God's favor. The third kind of church is the really intolerant church. A church that's intolerant of small differences or beliefs or custom. It often manifests its stuff with the way we dress. Some of you have been in those churches, right? You dress in a certain way. Women don't wear that, and, and you need to look this way, and guys don't let hair hang on your ears, or do this or do that, or don't wear this kind of makeup, or wear this kind of jewelry, and you do all of these things, and, and don't eat these things, and and, and, and listen to this kind of music, and don't listen to that kind of music. And, and these are characterized oftentimes by highly authoritative churches, by ritualized churches. We call them legalistic churches. All of them have one thing in common. They are preaching and teaching, while some of them with good intentions, they are teaching a false gospel. That is not grace alone. Grace plus anything else is not grace alone. And so what's our response? 
to this idea of Jesus plus anything else. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you've received, let him be accursed. How serious is it when anything is added to the pure gospel? Get this, accursed translates the Greek word anathema, which refers to that which is devoted to destruction. In other words, Paul is saying, if an angel comes down, even if he's got verses, if a pastor starts talking, even if he's got a book that hits the New York Times bestseller list, even if a pastor starts preaching on TV and you say, I always see him, and I see him on Pierce Morgan Live, and I, I see him on Live with Kelly and Regis, or now Regis is gone. I see him on there all the time too, and he's the world's, you know, he's the country's pastor. He must be true. No, if he preaches anything other than this, other than the gospel that I've preached, in fact, Paul said, even if I were to wake up one day and I say something different than this, I am to be accursed. I am to be devoted to destruction. That's pretty serious stuff, right? Let me tell you this. If I show up one day and I start preaching something different than I'm preaching today, kick me out, fire me. Get a new pastor. Get the elders together quickly and get me out of here because there is one gospel and that is what we preach here at Northwest. We ain't got nothing else. This is it. This is it. So why are we easily led astray from the pure gospel? Tim Keller says this. I read this quote to you a few months ago. There's a humbling truth that lies at the heart of Christianity. We love to be our own saviors. Our hearts love to manufacture glory for themselves. So we find messages of self-salvation extremely attractive. Whether they're religious, keep those rules and you earn eternal blessing, or secular, grab hold of these things and you'll experience blessing now. The gospel comes and turns them all upside down. It says, you are in such a hopeless position that you need a rescue that has nothing to do with you at all. He goes on to say, and here's the good news. And then it says, God and Jesus provided a rescue which gives you far more than any false salvation your heart may love to chase. You asked, does the pure gospel matter? Yes. How important it is, is it that we teach grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? I would say to you, it's all we have. We have no other reason for existing in this church. You have no other reason for existence as a human being on this planet. If you don't come to understand what it means to experience God's grace alone for salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing, and that equals everything. And for some of us here this morning, this introduction to the book of Galatians should cause us to give up on the idea that our salvation is secure because of our good behavior or our good works. We should stop performing and and doing simply things to gain God's approval. It's not about us. We can never be good enough. We can never perform well enough for a holy God. We love him because he first loved us Not so that he will love us. That's the point. It's all about his grace plus nothing else, which means we get no glory and he gets it all. Now, I know that for some of you, you're going, wow, I came in here this morning and I thought I was going to be encouraged out of the book of Galatians. Well, I hope you were. 
I hope for some of you that you go, you know what? I've thought that I got to do all this stuff in order to get God's favor, in order that he might give me a little, little whizzy buttons for my shirt. And I can go, look at my whizzy buttons. Aren't I great? Because I do all these things for God. And, and I've, been, I've been serving and I've been doing and I've been... And all of a sudden you're going, wait a second, it's, all, it's just about God's grace. It's free. The debt's been paid. God loves me now as much as he ever has or he ever will. I don't have to do anything to gain his favor. I simply have to trust in what he did on the cross alone for my salvation. That's not a beatdown. <laughs> if I'm these people and I get, I get this email from, uh, from the Apostle Paul, I'm going, I'm so glad he said that because I don't want to be circumcised. <laughs> I'm so glad he said that. Because I don't like these dietary laws. I'm so glad he said that because I don't want to wear those freaky looking clothes. I'm so glad he said that because I, 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 I want to listen to country music and I want to, maybe they didn't say country music. I don't know if they had it back then, but I'm so glad he said that, that it's by grace alone because that's what he told us when we were here and, 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 I, and I trusted in Christ alone and then I bought into the idea that I had to add all these things to it and I'm so glad that it is only about Jesus, that it's only about grace. And they fall back in love with Jesus again. And I'm praying for some of you that as we go through this book, as some of you will come to know Christ because you don't understand the, the true, pure, unadulterated gospel. And I know that's some of you. We're glad you're here, by the way. And for others of you that have been steeped in legalism and have bought into the idea that somehow you're going to gain God's favor, I hope you recognize that God loves you more than you could ever imagine or you could ever hope that he would. And when you do that, you live your life for the one who saved you. Not so that he will love you more, but because he loved you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Galatians. Thanks for Paul's introduction. As tough as it is, I'm glad he started out that way because it can only get better from here. It can only get more encouraging. But God, the basis for encouragement, the basis for living, the basis for us waking up this morning was because of who we are, because of who you are. Thanks for your love for us. Thanks for how you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, you suffered and bled and died on a cross as the substitutionary atonement for our sin. God, thanks for that. God, we pray that we will live this week in view of who we are because of what you did not trying to gain your approval, not so that you will love us more, so that you won't hurt us or beat us or, or give us some disease or put us in a car accident. But I pray that we will be who you want us to be because we know who we are because we have trusted in Christ alone, in grace alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.